Well, as some of you know, we have a worship pastor named Matt McGill. And Matt is talented. Matt is gifted. And if you don't know that, just ask him. He'll tell you chapter and verse. Matt's amazing. And you know that sometimes we'll talk about the upcoming sermon passage, and he'll ask me, what's the text? What are we going to be talking about? And I'll tell him, and sometimes Matt will just write a song like right there on the fly on a Tuesday. Sometimes he'll write one like on the way to church on a Sunday and then spring on the band. I'm pretty sure that there was at least once where after we prayed at 9.59 a.m. on their way past behind the curtain, Matt wrote a song, and they just didn't. So I figured, you know what? Matt's out today, and so I'm going to seize on the opportunity. I've written a little song you know, that secretly every worship pastor wants to preach. And so we've had the opportunity to hear Matt do that. Every pastor wants to lead worship, but praise God, that's never going to happen. But what I could do is just write a little song. Now, I thought, what would I do to connect that with our passage for this morning? And what I thought I would do is I want to I write a song that sort of establishes how many Christians functionally, functionally, functionally characterize their faith. Now, nobody in this room or nobody on the second floor or nobody watching remotely, but this is a lot of other people out there. This is how they would sing a very familiar, famous old hymn if it was an actual representation and a reflection of their functional Christian faith. It would go like this. Perhaps it's familiar to you. You may remain seated. It goes like this. We'll put the actual words on screen and just have I have nuances. I'm just going to read it out. It goes like this. All rightish grace, how eh, okay the sound that saved a normal guy like me. I once wasn't quite so awesome, but now I'm slightly above average. I was sort of out of place, but now I'm fine. Okay, hang in there. I'm sure you know there's more than just one verse to this great old hymn. So there's more. Second verse. It was morality that taught my heart to regret being bad like everyone else. How eh, nice-ish did that grace appear the hour I first joined his team? No amens yet. That's kind of weird. All right, wait, wait. You need some work on the rhythm. I got it, but stick with me. Now, some of you Baptists who come from that stream, that tradition, will have to forgive. We are going to do the second verse, or the third verse, sorry. Somewhere in the back, Stephanie Carter's like seizing up because we don't do third verses here. We're going to do it. The third verse, it goes like this. Through many inconveniences, we have already come. Twas grace that gave me just a little nudge, but I'll handle my life from here. It doesn't even rhyme. See, I miss Matt already. Well, okay, fine. Wait for the flourish, fourth and final verse. This is often where we sort of hit the bridge and then we modulate. It goes like this. When I've been there 10,000 years, bright shining, because I sort of deserve it. We've no less days to thank God for the boost than when I first let him in. Amen? Now, if I have that sung at your funeral, you're going to have a very bad eternity indeed. I, and I hope you, hate that non-song very, very much. It's also a little bit convicting. If we really proclaim that his grace is amazing, and it is, then we have to understand the enormity of what we've been saved from 
and two and see that it was literally the most hopeless and helpless situation in the universe, except for the two greatest words in the entire Bible in juxtaposition, in proximity. The two greatest words in human history, we might say, are as follows, but God. It also happens to be our big idea for the morning as we study this passage, but God. It's our big idea for this morning and hopefully for all eternity. I'm gonna invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in chapter two. We're gonna walk through efficiently these first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter two. Now, we've been in the book of Ephesians for about four weeks now. First week, we looked at Paul in Ephesus in the book of Acts chapter 19, and we heard all about power. Then a couple weeks ago, we were in the first major section of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which is all one great, grand, glorious, gospel-giving sentence that is about the reality, the enormity that God loves me. And then Paul thinks on this and says, well, what do you get the church that then has everything? Verses 15 to 23, one very long sentence. And the idea is knowing God is growing me. So in view of all that, what are we supposed to do? Now you have to remember that Paul is sitting in prison, chained to a Roman soldier when he writes the little letter to the Ephesians. Sitting in Rome, they're in Ephesus. And we have to keep in mind the context, the backdrop. These people were practitioners of black magic and all sorts of the arts of the occult. These people were idolaters bent on greed and even wrongly co-opting the name of Jesus. They were pretty much the last place on earth there should have ever been a church. But God. So Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to walk all the way through this, then we'll unpack it and we'll see if we can apply it. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Polypreposition, don't quit. He just loves to chain them all together there. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. And it's a good, good word. Now, I'm going to walk back through these and unpack it as quickly as I can. But this is such a rich, massive text. We could never fully mine the riches presented herein by the Apostle Paul to this church in Ephesus and therefore by extension and ultimately to us here and now. Now, I have to geek out and Greek out so that I can point out something very important. Grammar is the gospel. Now, not really. 
but grammar is a conveyor of the gospel very frequently. Chapter 1 is really just two very long sentences. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, is a very long sentence. Chapter 2, 1 to 7 is really just one very long sentence. I know in the English that it starts off and says, you were dead, sentence, and then a new sentence. No, 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 no. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, there is one subject and there are three verbs. That's it. Verses 1 to 3 make up the longest sentence introduction ever until finally in verse 4, we get the sentence with the subject and then three supporting verbs. Now, that's the grammar of the gospel. Three sentences of introduction. So when Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, there's no period there because in English, we don't quite know how to say it. It's a very clunky, strange introduction. But really, Paul says, and being dead like you were in sin and trespass. This is, oh my gosh. <laughs> Paul's sitting in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, and he's just written the greatest Trinitarian theological doctrine of salvation. He's told him the church that has everything just needs to know that. And then you get the idea, he just sort of puts his pen down. He goes, <laughs> I'm writing this to the Ephesians. Those people were cray-cray. They were worshiping Artemis. They tried to pull me to pieces in the theater. They were practicing black magic. You Ephesians, and you were being dead in your sin and trespass, weren't you? That is what you were like. And all of this just serves as an introduction to his primary point in chapter 2, verse 4. And you were dead in your sin. What is sin? Ultimately, it is missing the mark. There's the target. Best I got. Doesn't even get off the stage. Not so good. Or there's the target. Best I've got. <laughs> That's sin, missing the mark. Then there's trespasses. Literally means to take a step too far. In either case, they're effectively functionally synonymous. In either case, it is determining that something is good apart from God. And that is the way in which you walked. You were dead. You were dead, dead. Not mostly dead all day, for those of you that remember. You were dead. You're not physically dead, of course. You're animate. You're alive, but totally disconnected from God, so they are spiritually dead. Death is the inability to respond to anything. Death is the inability to respond to anything, so you are dead. You are separate. The word in Greek is nekros. It's where we get our word for necrotic, and of course it means dead. But it doesn't mean the cessation of existence, like it stops to be. It means it's separate. It means it's cut off. Something is necrotic because it's been separate from that which gives life and sustaining wellness. Who wants lunch? That's disgusting. Yeah, that's us. Now, you and I will only ever experience a temporary, temporal separation from soul and body, ever. But we will never have to experience the separation of God and man. Although, that is how we come into the world. But God... Now, we were dead by nature in essence, separate, unreachably divided from that which would give us life, even though we try to find life every place else. So, and you were walking around in your death, weren't you? Chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, that is worldliness, Worldliness or the course of this world is quite simply that system that is organized to leave God out. 
Now, some of you are going to say, that's right, they took prayer out of schools. Stop it. This is not political. Enough with that already. We, we can't mandate nor legislate someone's spiritual health and development. It's not about that. It's way, way worse. There's a system in the world, active, energizing, that is built on the assumption, the presupposition that man is sovereign and that our truth is determined by what we say, not a sovereign being who exists outside of our perception and he is the one who declares what is true. And everybody comes into the world operating according to that pattern. It's the system of a world that actually and subtly dehumanizes people while convincing them that they are being elevated as humans. I want you to think about the world system in which you and I live. It actually dehumanizes people. They ever increasingly, gradually, sometimes unnoticeably, become the very thing they fear most. That's what worldliness does. It dehumanizes. It is the program and attempt to un-God God. And Paul says, all of us walked according to that pattern. Paul doesn't seem to think that it's nature or nurture. No, it's much more dark and nefarious than that. In the pattern in which you once walked around, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Not a king. He's a prince, and only temporarily so. But he does have rule and authority in the present. And he's not a force. He's not an idea. He's not just a collection of cultural error and wrong in the world. He's a person, not a human, but he's a person with intelligent design and effort and will, and he has minions. There's an activity that is at work following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work. It's energizing is the word there. At work in the sons of disobedience. This is very serious stuff. Now verse three, among whom we all once lived. Now this is a fascinating confession. This is Paul born Saul of Tarsus, saying, man, I was in the exact same boat. All of us Jewish people, the sons of Israel, who were really pretty good and moral and decent, now we operated according to the course of this world just like you. Ours just looked a little different, a little bit more acceptable, a little bit more socially possible and plausible. But we all walked in this exact same format. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. He uses two different words here. Passions of the flesh. Epithumia, it's this strong desire. We often translate that as lust. Not all strong desire is bad. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus had strong desire to eat the Passover with his disciples. This is a misdirected strong desire at something less than. Something that is settling. A, a, a strong desire, an impulsive urge of our flesh, carrying out the desires, that is the bent and crooked will of our bodies and our minds. Now, this is big. In other words, it's worse than we think. We have strong urges that sometimes seize the reins of our souls and just turn the whole carriage to the left or to the right. But we also have, Paul says, a crooked or bent will. It's called the noetic effect of sin. Because of sin's existence in the world, our thinkers busted. I can't tell you how many times growing up, someone say, are you in your right mind? Now I can biblically say, no, no. 
Even the regenerate, even believers are still struggling through the corrosion and the corruption of our minds. How many times have you thought or said out loud, what were you thinking? I was on autopilot. I was following the course of this world that dehumanizes me and ungods God. That's what we were, Paul says in verse 3. And were by nature, our ontos, our makeup, our essence, what we were, children of wrath. Now, children, children bear the characteristics of their parents. So when Paul says we are children of wrath, we're chips off the old block. Judgment, dysfunction, disintegration is our characteristic because we come into this world walking according to that pattern. Now look here, that's what he says. Like the rest of mankind, there's nobody exempt from this. And so right here in verse two and three, we have this threefold unholy trio that is relentlessly assaulting all of us. We say this all the time, it bears repeating. 24-7, there is nonstop these three things that are coming at you. There is the world, the, the system of godlessness that dehumanizes humans and tries to ungod God. The world, the flesh. Paul talks about in Romans and Corinthians and here in Ephesians. There is a twistedness, a crookedness, a bentness. David talks about it in the Psalms where you are at odds with you. You do not have your best interest in mind. You and I are crooked. We are tilted to stern. We have destruction at our base default uh, wiring, and the devil, the world, the flesh, the devil, 24-7, nonstop, relentlessly assaulting all of mankind. <sighs> now, please understand what Paul's done here. In three verses, he has painted the most hopeless and helpless picture possible. It, it, it can't get worse than this. This is the longest introduction ever, and you were being dead in your sin, weren't you? Walking according to the course of this world, under assault by the world, your own flesh, and the devil. And you liked it. And you ran in the wrong direction aggressively. I want no part of that thing that you offer. That's who we were. That's what we did. And then finally, after the longest introduction ever, we have verse 4. Finally, we get the actual Subject of the sentence, but God, if you're not the kind of person that underlines things in your Bible, become that kind of person today. Every head bow, every eye closed. I see that hand. Become that person today. Put an asterisk by it. Put a smiley face emoji. Prick your finger and bleed on it. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God, in the midst of hopelessness and helplessness, but God, being rich in mercy. Not just, boy, he's a goodish God. Boy, isn't he swell? Some of you who are of a certain age, isn't he keen? No, no, no. He's rich, extravagant, exorbitant, prodigal, and profligate in, watch this word, in mercy. Elias. It's the same word that the Septuagint translates from the Hebrew, which is chesed, which is loving kindness, which is covenant-keeping love, which is faithfulness, niceness. God being rich in that. Please, please see this. This is why God does this, because this is who God is. This is how he is. This is what he's like. He's rich in mercy. He's loaded in loving kindness. 
Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but think thus. My God, my God is loaded with loving kindness. Even those times when I don't feel like he is, he is. It's what he's like, and he does not change. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved. Of course, this is agape love. Wanting the highest possible good of another. That's agape love. Now, right now, you can turn to your spouse and go, where's that been? Don't. Don't. Agape love is wanting the, po- the highest possible good for the other. I remind you, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We were a mess, hopeless and helpless. And yet, because God is loaded with loving kindness, with the great love with which he loved us, the agape love. In other words, oh, you need to like this. God's love has nothing to do with your loveliness or lack thereof, not making eye contact. God's love for you has precisely zero to do with your loveliness. And that's very good news because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse five, even when we were dead, Paul wants to make sure that you know that you were dead, dead, not mostly dead all day. You were dead in your trespasses. Three verbs we're gonna get in rapid fire succession. Verse five and six, God made us alive, raised us, and seated us. Made us alive, raised us, and seated us. Made us alive, raised us, and seated us. Here they go, verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, not just sort of sick, not just sort of COVID-brained, not just sort of cranky and fussy and maybe slightly wet. No, no, dead, dead. Unable to respond to anything. Separate, cut off. In that condition, don't miss that. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. God did a thing. Now, this is one of those great sermons that I love to preach because there's no obedience anywhere. You're not required to do anything. You just receive it. While you were dead, God did. That's, that's the deal. While you were dead and unlovable and unlovely, God lavished his loving kindness. Now, that's fascinating. The only God who actually exists, this is what he's like. Now, there are other alleged lowercase g gods who allegedly did this or that, but the only God that actually is, is the God that makes dead things alive. He takes dead things and makes them alive. He doesn't take sick things and make them well. He doesn't take ugly things and make them pretty. He doesn't make, you know, slightly below average things and make them slightly above average. No, that's called a comic book hero, and they aren't real. God takes dead things and he makes them alive. In other words, we all have to die to the fleshly and fallen assumption that hell would be an empty cavern if everyone else had figured out what I figured out. No, no. I was dead. I was dead, dead, separate, cut off, unable to respond to anything in, in his loving kindness, in which he's loaded He loved me. He sought my highest good. He made me alive. That which was dead or separated, he made alive or connected by spiritually, watch this, placing us in Christ who is connected to God the Father. That's what he did. You were separate. You were out there. You were 
apart. God said, I place you. I am making you alive in Christ. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? Look at me very carefully. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? The answer is yes. Just as soon, just as soon as Jesus can sin, stop being God, get kicked out of heaven, and get unresurrected. That's all it's going to take for you to lose your salvation. Him to sin, stop being God, get kicked out of heaven, and be unresurrected. That's a strange day. Because you are in Christ, who is in the Father, and the Spirit is in you. It is a massive, amazing grace. You were dead, cut off, following the course of this world, assaulted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God, but God, but God. So he made us alive. He also now, verse 6, and raised us up with him. Just like Jesus was raised already in human history, in the mind of God, we are raised as well. Raised to walk in newness of life in him. Keeps going in verse 6. And, <laughs> like this can't be real. This actually can't be. That's what it says. Verse 6. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In a very real sense, we are seated at the right hand of God the Father now. We literally could not be closer to him than we are right now. He could not be closer to us than he is right now. We are in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. His spirit indwells us. While you live in this world, still dealing with the sin nature that you and I still carry around, you literally could not be closer to God. He literally could not be closer to you, at least as far as he's concerned. And that carries more weight than how we feel about it. So you might say it this way. We have the opportunity to live now according to what Christ himself experiences physically and spiritually, even though we only experience it spiritually right now, looking forward to when we also experience it physically. What's true of Christ physically and spiritually is true of us spiritually. It's coming. Now, I can't make a big enough deal about this, but I shall now endeavor to try. These people, these Ephesians then, and by extension, us, were spiritually dead, rebellious against God, and who essentially and functionally shook their soul fists at God and said, no, thank you. No, thank you. I do not want you or love you or need you. In fact, I want you to not be God so that I can be God. That's the condition of all humanity. God took those people who were, in a sense, spiritually amputated from himself and reattached them to himself through Christ and then seated him at his right hand like princes of the cosmos. It's amazing. And please remember, it is with Christ, with Christ. There's a specificity and a particularness to this. It's not just God out there, not multiple paths up the mountain. Christ is the agency of how all of this happens. Verse 7, so that, why would God do this? Why would take, God take these dirty, dead, depraved things and make them alive and raise them and seat them next to him? Why would he do, why would he do, why would, I wouldn't do that. So that in the coming ages, that's where we get our word for eons or eternity, so that for all eternity, 
he might show the immeasurable. How do you show the immeasurable? It's an oxymoron. You can't unless you have all eternity to do so and you have an infinite number of display pieces so that he might show for all eternity the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. There's that word again, toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the agency. That's the delivery mechanism is it's Jesus. Now, we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. But it is so that we could be a part of his eternal glorification. Please notice the reason of our salvation. Now, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Now, again, there's the gospel in grammar. Nobody quite knows how to translate what Paul says here. He makes up a word because, you know, he's an apostle. He can do that from time to time. He just makes up a word. All scripture is theopneustos, God-breathed. That's not a word, Paul. Paul goes, uh-uh, it is now. It is now. Paul says, for, by grace. And then the word he uses, it's just one word. Sezos menoi. For by grace, sezos menoi. For by grace, sezos menoi. And I think Paul puts his pen down and goes, <laughs> that's awesome. And then he picks back up. For by grace, sezos menoi. Should read like this. And you were being dead, weren't you? Yada, 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 verse four. But God, yada, 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 verse eight. For by grace, y'all are the ones in the process of having already been saved. So he does. It's a plural tense participle that he just sort of makes up. For y'all, it's a nominative. It means that you're the subject of this clause. For by grace, y'all, you, you are the ones in the process of having already been saved. And in this one word, we've got past, present, and future, all there. For by grace, y'all are the ones in the process, in the present, of having already, in the past, been saved in the future. Oh, and that is a grace, Paul says. Well, what is the, it referred to? The entire thing. The fact that that is your identity now, that's a grace, an unmerited gift. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't accomplish it. You didn't achieve it. You didn't obtain it. You didn't find it under a rock in New Mexico. For by grace, y'all are the ones in the process of having already been saved. Now, what if that was true? Where we weren't trying to still, go, I'm still trying to prove to God that I'm lovable and lovely and worth his Loving kindness, no, 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 for by grace, you are the ones in the process of having already been saved and to flog the dead horse, Paul wants to say it yet again, this is by grace, this is by grace, it's not because of your cleverness, not because of your morality, it is a gift that God clawed open your dead white knuckles, placed the gift in your hand, and then closed your hand and your heart around it forever and said, I love you, and you went, yeah. I believe that. You believe that. Now, just as a way of illustration, you and I never chose to believe that fire was hot. I never said, you know what? Today's a Thursday. I believe I'm going to decide that fire is now hot as if it wasn't hot before. No, 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 no. It was quite literally in my case, because my skull is about three and a half inches thick in every direction, it was beaten into me, don't touch that, that's hot. 
Don't touch that. That's hot. Don't touch that. That's hot. And so it was taught me repeatedly. And so I believed it. And then there was the experiential, like, you know what? I see that that's hot. And so I believed it. You and I don't choose what to believe. We believe it because we believe it. And that is a gift. Now, I know I'm flying directly in the face of a whole lot of people's traditions, but I'm just telling you what the Apostle Paul says. Please do not get wrapped up around this capital C word. It's Pauline. It's just what Paul is saying. We don't choose what to believe. We just believe because it's a gift. We are the ones in the process of having already been saved. It is a gift. Their entire identity is a gift. So to put it plainly, faith is the means by which we were saved. It does not merit, earn, achieve salvation. We don't choose what to believe. We believe it and we are saved through it. And then just to make sure we really understand, Paul continues on in verse 9. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And if anyone could have boasted, it would have been Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was the king of awesomeness as far as morality and decency and goodness and niceness. But he calls all of his resume filthy rags and rubbish in Philippians chapter 3. It's not a work. It's not anything that we could say, you know what? I, and like we like to say up in the Texas Panhandle, I sipped Christ. When did you sip Christ? What's that now? When did you sip Christ? Well, I don't exactly know. I don't know. I can tell you that part of the predestinating grace of my life is there has never been a time when I did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But just like Peter in Matthew 16, that did not come to me by flesh and blood. It was a gift of his Father through his Spirit. Just like Paul in Galatians, that knowledge did not come by flesh and blood. It was a gift of his Father who is Spirit. I don't know. I don't know. I just praise God that I do. And I want to remind you what I said a couple weeks ago. Scripture has no instances of anybody who says, gosh, I sure want to believe, but I just, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not able to. I want to be a Christian, but I can't be. And there's nobody in Scripture that says, gosh, I'm a Christian. I sure wish I wasn't. Please take this eternal life and bliss and blessedness away from me. That person does not exist. So let us dispel with all the fear, uncertainty, and doubt about what that might mean. And remember that what Paul is saying here is it's a scandal of grace that he should save even one because we were dead, separate, cut off, unable to respond to anything. I don't know the date and the time. I don't celebrate a spiritual birthday. I was taught by people, parents, teachers. And yes, I went through a season of, gosh, I'm going to set out on my own and try this for myself and died a thousand deaths of separateness and dehumanization and ungodding God and 100 percent of the time, it ended in frustration and futility, failure and fallenness. So that which I believed re-emerged. I take no credit for that. I was dead in my trespass, but God. And then the payoff, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. This word only occurs one other time in the whole of the New Testament. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 20, when Paul describes the creation. The word is poema. It is where we get our word for poetry. It's artistry. You get the idea that when a Greek would write about poema, it had the idea of a, of a master sculptor or a master musical composer writing a score using not just slapping hands on a 
pottery wheel. No, 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 no. Fashioning and forming with great, intricate, precise detail with his fingers. For we are his poema. Nobody else is ever described that way. We are his artistry, created or recreated in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. For good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, your NIV, if some of you still have the NIV, translates that, unfortunately. It says created to do good works. Bad translations, not what it says. Created for good work, which God planned in eternity past for you to just, you to just walk in it. It's not about you doing good works. Stop it. You don't have to ask, what is the will of God? No, 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 no. You are the will of God. You are his poetry in motion. You've always thought so. Now it's true. You are his artisanship. You are his artistry in motion. These two wonderful bookends of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You were walking wrong direction, dead, separate, aggressively, rebellious, and revolting. You were walking according to the course of the world of the flesh and the devil. And you are the ones in the process of having already been saved so that you will walk in the good work that he's already doing in and through you. It's not about you and me doing a bunch of moral, mindless, mechanical good stuff because we just should, and that's what we do. Is that how you saw Jesus' earthly ministry? Just doing a bunch of good stuff because he felt like he should and it was just the right thing to do? No, he was ever mindful of his father, always walking according to the purpose of his father. What is your life supposed to be like? Jesus, poetry in motion, gone global, gone viral. You were dead, walking in death, but God, you are his poetry in motion. So let me just land this with three very quick implications here. Number one goes like this. We were objects of wrath, or to put a fine point on it, we were children of his wrath. We come into this world bearing the characteristics, the nearness to our parent, which is the wrath and judgment and the disintegration, dehumanization. And yet we come into this world also very confident and certain that we're going in the right way, thank you. We're heading the wrong direction with our foot on the gas, going, no, I'll get there on my own. But you're driving west and you're supposed to be going east. I'll go faster. Okay, it's the wrong way. But we're certain that we're right. But I mean, come on, everyone messes up, right? I mean, we're, we're all just human. Actually, no. Actually, no. Paul seems to be saying here, as we are living according to the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we are actually going through disintegrating dehumanization. So no, we're not actually the human that we were created to be. We're less than and not the full human that we were created to be. The default situation is dire. People who were created in his image are rebellious beings who are constantly trying to shock off the humanity that God gave them, and they are confident that they are correct and justified in doing so. It was totally helpless. We were objects of wrath, but God. We are, point two, trophies of his grace. Now, I don't know if you think of yourself thus, 
You were being dead in your sin, weren't you? But God, and now you and I are trophies of his grace. For all eternity, the greatness and glory of God will be demonstrated, not in Saturn's rings, although that's cool, not in the pattern of the ostrich's feathers, although I suppose that's neato. No, 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 no. For all eternity, it'll just keep getting better and better and better and better. Or for all eternity, what this passage tells us in Ephesians 2, 7 is that Jesus himself will be like, okay, everybody gather around. Check this out. Come here, come here, come here, come here. This is Brandon. Let me tell you what God did in and for him. And I plucked him out of death and I made him alive. He was poetry in motion. And while he lived on this earth, I sang songs over him. Let me tell you about Sue. For all eternity. Jesus, the greatest teacher, God himself, fully God, fully human, will display and demonstrate the trophies of the grace of God, his Father. We are trophies of his grace. His greatness and glory will take this Eric, his totally depraved, dead, dirty thing. And God will say, oh, I had to lift with my legs on that one, but I got him. I got him. He's a trophy of my grace. Look how gracious I am. Am I not merciful? Oh, yes. The entirety of the angelic realm will proclaim. And in so doing, we'll see that God actually redemptively recreated that human that was disintegrating and dehumanized. God recreated him. Why? Why would God do that? Third point goes like this. We will ever be his artistry. Now, I gotta tell you, I have phrased these for myself. I have phrased these in little short, compact sentences and clauses because I have to say this to myself as I drive around, as I walk around, as I have hard conversations. I was an object of his grace. I'm an object of his wrath. I'm a trophy of his grace, and I will ever be his artistry. That's my identity. Poetry in motion. What would it be like if millions and millions of people whose humanity had been redemptively restored and recreated were walking around as artistic demonstrations and splendors of God's grace? You know what they'd call that? Not heaven. Church. It's the greatest art gallery ever. Is all the poetry in motion that God can fashion assembles here. And every Sunday we gather and we have a, an art showing him. Look at her. Look at that guy. Look, no, look at that guy again. Wow. The gallery of his glory and his grace is the gathering of his church. I get to walk around just looking at this one going, man, God took that dead thing who was an object of wrath, made him a, trophies of, a trophy of grace, and now he is a walking around poetry in motion. This grace is amazing, utterly hopeless, but God. Now, you and I have to remember this because not if, but when the world, the flesh, and the devil come at us and tell us that we're still that dead, dirty, depraved thing. Yes, that was true, but newsflash, but God, I'm a trophy of his grace and I will ever be his artistry. And let me just say, Christian, if that's you, this is the power that Paul's been preaching and proclaiming to break all of us out of this 
pointless cycle of, gosh, I'm just trying to do my best, but I keep messing up, and I'm trying to do good, but, you know, I don't really like doing good because it's boring, and eh, uh, I guess I'm just going to, uh, and you just sort of drudge and drudge and drudge until hopefully one day you hear this giant trumpet in the sky, and you can finally quit. That is not the redemptive recreation to which you have been made alive, raised up, and seated with him in the heavenly places. You are walking around intended to be his poetry in motion. So be free. This grace is amazing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that despite the fact that our situation was hopeless and helpless and dire, you, who are loaded in loving kindness, sought us, made us alive, raised us up, and seated us in Christ. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning, if they are not known by you, if they are still separate, that you would quicken, bring to life. We simply pray, God, that you would do for them what you have done for us. Not that they would be convinced or sold or finally just yield, but no, that they would come alive and that they would believe so that they too would be the one in the process of having already been saved. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of just how amazing your grace is and that we would walk in it. I pray all this, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.